Well, good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and a real delight here to pick up in our series on the book of Ephesians that we started last week here, post-Easter. When we think about our heart's deepest desire, our greatest longing, isn't it that we would be included? That we would be valued, that we would be pursued, that we would be noticed, that we would be wanted, that we would be picked, that we would be chosen. Isn't that our heart's greatest desire? That we would be part of the group that matters to us, accepted among the people that our heart goes out to. It's like, I want to be with them. And they accept us. They include us. They invite us in. Isn't that where our heart longs to be? I can think of examples all the way back to elementary recess where whatever the sport of the day was, there's two captains, right? And you're waiting, are they going to call my name? And are they going to call my name early? Because early is better than later, right? And you don't want to be like, well, you can kind of have the rest. You know, you don't want to be part of the rest. You want to be, you want to hear your name picked, right? You go through school a little bit later, and maybe you're trying out for one of the sports teams, maybe you're trying out for the drama club or theater, or maybe it's one of the, the band or orchestra groups or the choir groups, but, but what you hear is that there's gonna be announcements on Friday afternoon as soon as classes are over. It's gonna be hung outside on the office wall, the lists of the teams, and you've been cut before. But you're, you're in trepidation all day long, waiting, am I gonna be on the list? I, wanna be, I hope I'm on the list, am I gonna be on the list? And you go with your friends for moral support and you're looking at the names, I'm in, they want me, I've made it. And you remember that joy, right? My brother is in a process right now of getting a promotion. It's a great thing. He's looking to, to transfer to a different job. It's going to require a move, so there's some challenges there. And he's having interviews at different places, and the whole family is kind of in this with him, experiencing this with him. And we're waiting for him to get that phone call where he hears, Bruce, we want to let you know that we have been interviewing a variety of well-qualified candidates, and we want you to know we've picked you. When can you start? And we're ready to celebrate with him that great news. Or you can think about this experience that some of you women have experienced in life where you've been out with your friend, and he gives you a gift, and it's a small gift, and as you open it up, you see his knee falling to the ground. Single knee, guys, single knee. <laughs> and in the moonlight, you see this glistening reflection of the gold mixing with the diamond, and you realize you were the chosen one, right? And how that feels. Now, whether we're talking your friends, your coach, your boss, or your soon-to-be spouse, it's a rich experience to be chosen, isn't it? But I wanna do you one better, because imagine if the creator of the universe, the God who has made everything, has chosen you and said, I want you on my team, I want you in my program, you are part of my plan, 
I intend to pursue my purposes with you. Can you imagine that? Well, that is the territory that we are gonna be in here in Ephesians chapter one. This is glorious territory. I'm so grateful for the energy and the celebrative, celebrative atmosphere that we've had already this morning because that is exactly the atmosphere that Paul is in. You're gonna see him celebrating. You're gonna see him with uncontained joy. It's like how much joy and celebration can he put into 12 verses? Well, we're about to find out in, uh, in just a minute here. And we're gonna see what is God doing through the ages? Where do I fit? in his plan because if God has chosen us, we want to know, well, what is this team about? What do we do? What's God doing? What's his role for me? That's part of this territory as well. We're going to see that God has lovingly chosen a people for his team. We are his possession. We are his pleasure. We are part of his plan and this is for his praise and his glory. Um, Just before we open up Ephesians chapter 1, I want to remind you of last week, for those of you who were here, and for those who, who weren't, we'll integrate you, catch you up to speed a little bit. Uh, Ken Burning last week gave us some, some handles for the book of Ephesians that we can know where we are and what to expect. So there's a single word for chapters one to three, for four to five, and for, for chapter six. So what's the word? It's a posture word for chapters one to three. Sit, right? And for four to five? Walk, all right? And for chapter six? To stand, okay? So we're in chapter one, which means this is about sitting, okay? So what this means is there are some of you in the room that you're activists. You want to like, let's just stop talking about things and let's go do it for Jesus, right? Let's go get, get, get in motion and let's go do stuff. Well, that's coming up, okay? Chapters four and five, right, right? And it's gonna show you how to lovingly do that, right? How to do that graciously, how to do that in a way that honors Christ. If you're like, you're competitive and you're like, I'm ready, I wanna take on the enemy. Just give me Satan and I'm gonna go after him, all right? That's chapter six, gonna get some guidelines how to do that, all right, that's chapter six. We're in chapters one to three. For those of you who are contemplatives, this is your territory, baby. For those of you who are philosophers, You want to think through things deeply. Oh, man, this is your home base, all right? For those of you who like to muse, take things in slowly. These are truths to ponder. These are truths to take into the depths of your heart so that you know who you are and what God is calling you to so that When we get to chapters four and five about the activity of doing things for the Lord, we do it in light of our identity and in light of our calling. And when we dare stand up to Satan, we understand what's at stake and what God has done in that and what Christ has done in that. So this is part of the taking in the truths of who we are and what God is doing and where we fit in that. So as you open to uh, Ephesians Chapter, uh, chapter one, verses three to 14, I just wanna say a couple things about it. <clears throat> In Greek, this is one sentence, all right? Paul is literally breaking gruel, rules of grammar to connect thoughts in this endless run-on, okay? Your English teachers would go nuts here, all right? Because he doesn't want there to be any break in the momentum 
Periods tend to be pauses that we think, oh, new topic, and he wants you to know that this all holds together, this all moves together, this is one perpetual motion of praise and adoration and truth and reality, and it's this, this um, just this breathless uh, rhetorical flourish here. I can't read it in one breath, but I'm gonna try to bring some of the energy to it that Paul intends here, all right? He says, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, let me just say, this is loaded, okay? You could teach a theology course out of these 12 verses, all right? Um, There's no way that I can do justice to every theological issue that's in this passage. I want to give you some handles. I want to give you a framework. I want to highlight a few of the truths and to try to make it as simple and practical as I can, but at the same time to encourage you to spend time in this chapter and take it in more deeply than we'll be able to get to today. Um, The first thing that I want us to notice is the praise. It literally starts out, blessed be God for, for the blessings that he has blessed us with. It's like, I wanna praise God because he has blessed us with every available blessing. We're gonna get into uh, some of the words there in just a, a few minutes, but I want us to capture, this is all about praise. Paul is so enamored with God He sees God as worthy of our attention, worthy of our affection, worthy of our praise, worthy of our lives, in such a degree that this is framed by by eruptions of praise. I, I read through a number of commentaries this week and it was interesting that Every commentator that I read had a different approach on how to structure this, this, this run-on sentence, <laughs> how to put it into sections. And uh, so if you've got a different approach, hey, that's great, I like yours too, but this is how I'm doing it, all right? So I'm doing it by the, 
uh, by the doxologies, by the praises. So it starts with this heading, verse three, of praise, and then verses four to six is about what God has done, what he has planned from eternity past. And look how it ends in verse six, Paul's response to this. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's Paul's response to God's plan. And then it begins to focus in verse seven on Jesus' work, enacting the plan of God and all the details of it. And we're gonna look at those. But look how it ends here, verse 12. Might be for the praise of his glory. Everything Jesus does is for the praise of the glory of God. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit gets his turn here. And it ends in verse 14. Uh, we who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the Father has a role, the, the Son has a role, the Spirit has a role, all of this to bring praise to the glory of God. And that's the first thing that I want us to see as we think of who, who are we? Um, and I wanna just ask this question, and if you're in a life group, this would be a great question for your group to discuss today or whenever you meet, is what would cause you to be overwhelmed with praise of God. Paul is overwhelmed in this passage. What would cause you to become similarly overwhelmed with praise of God? Um, God has a, has a plan that Paul is seeing. It's a plan that's unfolding. It includes people. It includes us. And that's what he's so enamored about, so excited about. We wonder, well, who are we? We use labels, they're identifiers, they're helpful, they serve purposes. Probably the most common label that we use to describe ourselves is the word Christian, and it's a good word. Um, it's been used for centuries, and, and really when we say the word Christian, we are defining ourselves against people who uh, are believers in other religions or other gods. We're also defining ourselves against those who are atheists or believe in no God. But positively, we're saying we identify with Christ. We're saying we are followers of Christ. We belong to Christ. Literally, it means we are little Christs. Uh, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And so, uh, so we embrace this term, Christian. Interestingly, historically, it was used derisively by opponents of Christians who would dare align themselves with someone who had died shamefully on a cross. And eventually, believers realized there is no more glorious term than to identify with my Savior and Lord who not only died but also was resurrected and now is reigning. Uh, so yeah, call me what you will. Your words, sticks and stones, I'll take them on. Christian, I am. But here's what's interesting is in the New Testament, that's not the word that believers in Christ were known by. It's only used three times in the entire New Testament. There's other words, followers of the way, uh, that, you, that you see in Acts. Um, believers is used tremendously, a tremendous number of times. But there is, uh, there's another term that we're gonna get to in just a moment, but there's a concept that envelops kind of two terms. And it's a concept that has been common and, and popular by theologians throughout the ages for probably 1900 years until till recently, till our era. Like, what's up with this? Why did things change? And what have we lost. Um, it's a phrase called union with Christ. Have you heard of that before? 
I gotta confess, I don't think I'd even heard that term being a big deal till a few years ago, and I was reading Orthodox um, writings. I, it just hasn't been a part of my evangelical upbringing. And, and I wonder, well, well why is that? Um, there's a book that I just started reading this week. I accidentally came across it, um, and then I've talked with Ken about it. Uh, Tim Keller calls this book the best book for lay people on this subject of union with Christ, and it's got a title that you can easily remember. Wait for it. Union with Christ, all right? So uh, there it is, Union with Christ. It's by a guy named Rankin Wilburn. And I tell you, if I had a name that cool, I'd want to be published also. So Rankin Wilburn, he's actually from L.A. Um, I'm only partway through this, but I'm really taken by what he's, what he's offering already. But, but two things that I want to say about what union in Christ is, there's kind of two directions that we can think of it, two directions that the New Testament speaks toward. And the one we're more familiar with, this is Christ in us, or Christ in me. Um, Paul will say in, in a couple chapters, Christ in you, the hope of glory, in chapter three of Ephesians. But this is the territory that we're in when we talk with people about inviting Christ into their heart, meaning into their passions, into their loves, or inviting Christ into their life, or coming to reign in their life. Um, this is the same thing that Jesus is talking about uh, in John, when he says, I will not abandon you, I will not leave you for, as orphans, but I will come back to you, and then there's a surprise. He says, I will send the comforter, the counselor, and he will be in you, right? He will be the presence of God, the spirit of Christ dwelling in you. And so that's this familiar territory, and we've focused on that recently with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ in us. And so we're more familiar with that territory. But the, the, the emphasis of the New Testament is a different direction. And it's this second side of union with Christ. And it's this corporate idea, this concept of all of us together that are in Christ. So there's one view of Christ in me, but this is us in Christ, okay? Um, 165 times in the New Testament, this phrase or concept of being in Christ is, is written. Is, does that seem important? Does that seem significant, perhaps? In fact, it's 11 times here in this passage, in these 12 verses. This is the central thing that the, the framing of this is praise, but what is Paul excited about? Well, he's excited for you to know what it means to be in Christ, for us to be in Christ together. Um, so that's, that's the, the, the stuff of what this passage is about. Um, he's speaking of, of every spiritual blessing. Look here in verse three. This is kind of the, the heading here. Um, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Sometimes when we hear the word heaven, we too quickly think about a destination or where we're gonna go after this life. And that's not quite the concept here. These are the realities of heaven, meaning the life of God, the things of God, angelic realities, principalities of angels versus demons. 
this is a spiritual life that he's talking about, the life of our hearts, the, lights, the, the, the life of, of our spirit engaging the spirit of God. These are where the spiritual blessings are. This isn't blessings of how my social media is going, right? This isn't blessing of the, the popular group that I'm in at school. This isn't blessings of my favorite television show or getting a good job or, or the, the, the promises that people give you at timeshare uh, demonstrations, um, you know, the allure of that fanciful, luxuriant life. These are spiritual realities of substance. How do you live life with inner peace? How do you live life with real hope? How do you have relationships based on forgiveness and love that endures? How do you satisfy your soul? These are the realm of spiritual realities that come to us in Christ. Every spiritual blessing comes from him. It's this idea of the realities of heaven being poured out while we are still here on earth. It's, it's the answer to, to the Lord's prayer that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven through us, his people, that we would experience the realities of heaven, the truths of that. Um, So every spiritual blessing is in Christ and we are chosen by God to be in Christ. Um, I want you to do something with me. We're gonna do this a few times today, so here's a practice round. Uh, I'm gonna give you one finger for one word, two fingers for two words, three fingers for three words. And those of you who are prone to write things down, this would be something to write down. You can give yourself one line, two lines, and three lines, all right? All right, so here's the first word, chosen, okay? Say that, chosen. Awesome. Two words. In Christ. Three. For God's glory. That's the message today. We're going to see this over and over today, all right? And I want you to say this. Add a we are in front of that. We are chosen in Christ for God's glory, okay? That's, uh, that's our focus today. Um, verse four to six is this first segment, and this centers on this chosen aspect. Look at this, uh, verse four. For he chose us in him, see, in Christ. There's a time when he did this, before the creation of the world. Is that crazy? Before we even existed, God chose us in Christ. He chose us with a purpose, and he chose us in a way. Um, And I want us to see this here. The first thing is this idea of being in Christ. Everything that Christ gets, we get. Everything that's true about Christ becomes true about us when we are in Christ. It's like if you're on the team that wins the championship, whether you're a starter, whether you're on the bench, whether you're the ball boy, you're part of the team, right? Whether you're the coach, you get the benefits, you get the ring, you get the championship, right? Christ has done it, we get, we get the benefits only on his merits, not our own. But nonetheless, if we are in Christ, We get the merits, we get the benefits um, chosen in Christ. So he's he's the sphere. Um, It says there's a purpose here. You see the purpose? We are chosen 
it's not just to get the prize, it's to become a certain kind of people. You see that there? Into verse four, we are chosen to be holy. We are chosen to be blameless in his sight. See, God has a plan for us. If, if I were to make it onto a, a, a sports team or a music group, I would wanna know what's my role? What's the instrument that I'm playing? What position am I playing? And what's expected of me, right? When God chooses us, he doesn't leave us to try to figure out, well, I think I'll do this for God. Well, maybe I'll pursue that for God. He, he graciously tells us, and this is his heart for you, to live a holy life, to be a holy person, to be blameless before God. What this means is that when other people would see you, they would see, oh man, I'm experiencing some of the holiness of God through you. When I'm see how you react to things, how you interact with people, how you respond to hard scenarios. I see the grace of God in you. I don't see you return anger for anger, evil for evil, put down for put down. I see people curse you and you bless them. Somehow I see God glorified in your life. That's what God is saying. The purpose, the reason he has chosen us is to be holy is to be blameless, so we have a life calling here. Um, and then there's this wonderful word, predestined, predestination. It's hard to know if there is a more contentious word in all the New Testament than this word, causing more debates, more church splits, more ink to be written, more fuel, more combativeness. What does this mean? I have heard people say that if predestination is true, God is a monster. Um, we have other people that say this is the most glorious truth that there is. Um, you know, who's right about this? I'm not gonna solve that today. <laughs> but this I know to be true. Whatever predestination is about, I wanna see Paul's response to it. What is the tone that Paul speaks of this with, all right? Because whatever his tone is, that's what I want my tone to be. Whatever his attitude is toward this word, that's what I want my attitude to be toward this word, because he's the expert on it. He's communicating something, and I dare not take something that he's saying and twist it to make it say something else that's not what he intended, right? So I want to find out, what's the tone of Paul? And when he uses this word, oh man, he is overwhelmed. He, with, with good stuff, not, not bad overwhelmed, not like overwhelmed with anxiety. He is overwhelmed with the love of God. And I want you to see this. I want you to feel this, all right? He's saying, verse four, you are, he, we, we have been chosen in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Look at this, in love. He predestined us in love. This came from his heart poured out toward us. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. We're gonna come back to that in a moment. In accordance with his pleasure and his will. This brings pleasure for God to have chosen people um, and his will and it results in the praise of his glorious grace. Somehow his choosing of us uh, highlights his grace and his graciousness toward us which he, he hasn't come in a demanding way, in a harsh way. He has freely given us 
in the one that he loves or in the beloved, which is the beloved son, Jesus. Do you see everything here is dripping, oozing with love, with grace, with joy, with delight. And that's the tone that Paul brings to this concept of predestination. Somehow we have been chosen in Christ for God's purposes with all the love and affection of an adoptive parent. Now, I wish at this point, if I'd have planned ahead, I'd have had Ken or some other adoptive parent come up and take this next couple minutes. If, if you've never gone out to lunch or out to coffee with an adoptive parent, I just encourage you to do that. Find somebody who's adopted and, and hear their story and listen as long as they'll talk because you will find out that, man, they, they had to pray. They had to plan. They had to hope. They might have gone through multiple attempts that were heart-wrenching where they lost children that they thought were going to be theirs. And they come to the point of they are willing to do almost anything to get this child that they don't even know yet, but they are committed to loving and paying for, right? And sometimes there's a baby that's going to be born by an unwed mom who is too overwhelmed with being able to raise her own child and a decision for adoption is made before that child has even been born, before that child has done anything to deserve love. The parents have already committed to adopt it. They've already paid the price. They've already committed their hearts and their love to this child. This is a picture of God's adoption of us. There is one true born, in a sense, biological. There's, only, there's one only begotten son, that's Jesus. All the rest of us, we are his adopted sons and daughters, his adopted children, but who get all of the privileges of the family. And there's a cost. And look at the next couple of verses. Uh, this is gonna move us into the next section uh, to see this cost. But before we do that, let's just review. We are chosen in Christ for God's glory, right? Okay? The next section here, starting in verse seven, says, in him we have, look at this word, we have redemption. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. See, adoption costs these days. It's an extraordinary amount of money, just, not just paying off the lawyers and doing the paperwork, but then all of the costs of raising a child and, and perhaps even sending them to college. Uh, physical human adoption is extremely expensive, but not near as expensive as the adoption that God pursued in adopting all of us. Redemption is a financial word. It's an economic term. It's a purchase price. When we hear redeem, we should hear cha-ching. Okay, and what was the price? What does it say? The price of, it was Christ's blood. We were redeemed through his blood. We're gonna be celebrating communion in uh, just a few minutes, and as we think about the blood in the glass, uh, representing the blood of Christ. This is, this is the cost of our adoption, the cost of his choosing of us, the cost of bringing us into the family of God. 
um, we, are, we have redemption, and he's clarifying what this means. The essence of redemption, or, or the purpose of redemption, is that we would have forgiveness of sins. All of us know that when we're alone, when we're in the privacy of our hearts, when we're in darkness, when no one else is around, we know where our hearts go, don't we? We know the things we think about that we wouldn't dare mention to others. We know the things that we ponder, even if we might not pursue them. We know the things we have pursued in the past, things that grieve the heart of God, things that break relationships with other people, things that are dishonest in our dealings with people, little untruths or massive bold lies, the things that separate us from other people, the things that separate us from God and his holiness and his perfectness, the things we do to friends, the things we do to position ourselves as more important than others, our native selfishness. All of these things are what the Bible calls sin. All of these things separate us from a holy God. All of us need forgiveness in relationships with one another. All of us need forgiveness in our relationship with God. And that's what God has bought for us through the blood of Christ. He's bought, relation, he's bought forgiveness of our sins that we can have uh, through him. So this is this great theological reality here. And notice that it just keeps going. It's in accordance with the riches of God's grace. God doesn't do this as an angry judge. God doesn't do this with a spiteful nature. God forgives us in love. He forgives us in grace. Um, According to the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding and made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. When I hear that he lavished his love on us, just picture being poured out liberally, overflowingly, all right? Love being slathered, just being overwhelmingly poured out to overflowing. Think of an ice cream sundae. You like ice cream sundae? Think of your favorite syrup, whether that's chocolate syrup or caramel syrup, whatever your favorite syrup is. Just, they start pouring it. It's like, is that enough? That's enough. No, no, here's more. And he, here's more. We're just gonna, gonna slather this on, all right? Or think of a Thanksgiving dinner and and it's, it's, it's your grandma's gravy. And when people said good gravy, it was about your grandma's gravy, right? And it's, it's like they're, they're pouring the pot, and it's like, no, more, more, yeah, more. And you just completely cover to overflowing your turkey, your stuffing, your mashed potatoes. It's just lavished as it's poured out. That's a picture of God's love for you. It's a picture of his grace extended to you. Um, and it's not just about our hearts. Do you see there? It's about wisdom and knowledge and, and insight and mysteries that are being explained now. 
Some of you have experienced how you want to learn something and you got to pay expensive fees. Anybody go to college? It's expensive, right? Uh, private lessons, music, it's expensive. Private coaching and anything, it's expensive. The, there's a cost to that information. Some of you have doubtless seen emails uh, that have come to your inbox, uh, variation on this theme. The greatest tech stock since Apple. Guaranteed 10 bagger, right? And you can't hold yourself back, so you click on it. And because you want to find out what, what is this great new tech stock? I want to invest in it. What's the, what's the ticker? And so you start listening to the presentation, and you know it's interesting, it's compelling. Pretty soon, it's, it's all over the place. And you've just spent an hour on this, and you get to the end of it, and they say, you can have this free information after you've signed up for our newsletter, which is a cost that might be $49, might be $490, might be $4,900, and then you get the free ticker, right? And you're like, oh, I feel so ripped off. But that is not the way of God. He says, see, he lavishly, graciously gives us knowledge, gives us wisdom, gives us insight to the mysteries of all time. And, the, and the, what he is communicating right now, the center of the mystery, is that we are God's people, chosen from the beginnings of the world to play the significant role in all things coming together under Christ, where God is uniting heavenly realities, angels, and those who worship God in heaven with the people of God here, Jews and Gentiles, gonna get into that in chapter two, as one people. God is bringing heaven to earth. God is uniting heaven and earth under Christ, using us, inviting us to be on his team and participate in his purposes, and we find a purpose for our lives, and we find an identity in Christ. Um, Look at verse 11 and 12. In him, we were also chosen. Your translation may say, you were an heir, or there's an inheritance. Uh, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. This is one of the most encouraging verses that we have in all of the Bible. That God is working in everything or in everything God is working out his purposes. We could think of uh, some of the the irritants of, of God, some, of life, I mean, some of the trivial things. Um, people who know me well, they know that I get frustrated at frustrations. I want life to be the way life ought to be. It ought to be the way it ought to be, right? Life ought to be right, right? And it's so often not. It's so often broken. It's so often frustrated. There's so often these curveballs or these speed bumps or these irritations along the way. So whether it's small irritations like some guy commits to buy something on offer up and then he never shows up and wastes hours of emotional time of trying to reschedule and when's this going to happen and trying to reorient your day and he never shows up, right? Irritant. Um, but there can be genuine difficulties. Perhaps you've had relational friction and it's tearing your heart out. Perhaps you've had car trouble. 
Um, my, my wife had a scenario where um, her car caught on fire at 5 o'clock p.m. on a Friday, rush hour traffic in the busiest intersection of our city at that time. That's a traumatic experience. Um, we have, sometimes uh, people have, have lost incredible amounts of money or they've lost jobs. Those are, those are things that set us back. Those are real difficulties. Um, and then we have tragedies. We have major issues. Things like cancer, things like war, things like intense suffering. Um, I have been to three memorials in the last four weeks. People that love God and have lived amazing lives and yet their lives have been cut short. One by dementia, one by heart attack, one by cancer. Deeply loved people who honored God throughout their lives. But I want you to know that these horrific things that ended up taking their lives, that's not the end of the story. That's not the final word. Because God was glorified in their lives. And God even worked in these tragedies to bring glory to himself as they became more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That through sickness, through illness, they still found a way to maintain their faith. They still found a way to point to Jesus. They still found a way to experience grace in their lives and to have lives that glorified God. And in their deaths, Christ was glorified and honored. And now they are with Christ beginning their venture in eternity, continuing to be trophies of grace and bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. God has a plan, he has a purpose, and he's working out everything as he works in every situation to bring you into the conformity of Christ and bring you into the conformity of his will. He's predestined us and even allowed these things in our lives to bring him glory and to bring him praise. I can think about how much I cried and how discouraged I was uh, when I was early 20s and in high school and had relationships that, that failed, that didn't work. With some perspective and distance and time, I have nothing but praise. I'm so grateful to the Lord that he saved me for my wife, Lisa. And we'll be 28 years together next month. And, and I praise God for his faithfulness. And sometimes his faithfulness is saying no. Sometimes it's shutting things down. Sometimes it's grieving our heart temporarily while he's working out his better purposes. Um, God's plan isn't to not stretch us. God's plan isn't to not grow us. It isn't to not keep us dependent on him. God doesn't want us to be kind of blobby, flabby, spiritual couch potatoes who've never learned to use our faith muscles. So he uses the things in life to give us opportunities to need God and to turn to him. So God brings delights into our life so that we'll praise him. God brings transitions into our life so that we'll trust him. And God allows hard things into our lives to wean us from lesser things so that we'll love him more. No matter what you're going through right now, life that's hard, 
life is in transition, life is painful, I want you to know that God is working in it. He's working in you to help conform you to the image of Christ and help bring glory through your life and through your story to others. He's chiseling away at you. He's using refining fire in you to make you more like Jesus to the praise of his glory. Let's say it together, I am this time. I am chosen in Christ for God's glory. Really quickly, these last two verses bring this to a head. Verses 13 and 14. And you also, this is where it becomes personal, you also were included in Christ. When? When did that happen? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, and then you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. This is loaded here, but I want to say this uh, quickly and hopefully really clearly, all right? There is a time in which each of us enter into the chosen people of God. It's like, how do I know? How do I know if I've been predestined? How do I know if I've been chosen? Well, this verse has just told us, okay? It happens when you heard and when you believed, all right? When you heard and when you believed. And when you believe, something happens. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and he becomes the down payment securing your inheritance. And what we find is that We are actually God's inheritance. God forever has been seeking a people for his own name. That's the whole story of the Old Testament, starting with Adam and then restarting with Abram and building a nation, building a people for his own name. And as they failed, God sent Jesus to restart a people for his own name, that Jews and Gentiles, everyone who believes in him, would be a people for his own name, and we are his inheritance. Uh, Peter calls it out, he says, you were not a people of God, but now you have become the people of God, a chosen race, a chosen generation. In Revelation at the end, it gives us this picture of the climax when, and it's described as, as, as he will be our God and we will be his people. Here's the great thing, we actually become God's inheritance. But then because we're his children, then we get the inheritance. Isn't that awesome? It's his, we're his inheritance, but then we're invited to his family, we're adopted in, and then it becomes our inheritance. Heard, believed. I want to make sure that there's not anyone in the room that hasn't heard the gospel in its simplest form. God is perfect. We are not. God had a plan from eternity to call a people to himself for his purposes, for his glory. We can't opt in to that plan. We can't make ourselves into those people because our sin separates us from a perfect and holy God. So God sent Jesus, really God came and entered humanity. And Jesus was born as the only begotten Son of God. He lived a life that we couldn't live. He lived a perfectly righteous life, the only life that has ever been lived that is acceptable to God. 
And then he died on the cross for our sins that we'll be celebrating with communion here momentarily. He died on the cross to pay the redemption price for our sins that whoever believes in him, their sins will be forgiven. That's a gift, it's an offer. Someone reminded me after last service, the rich young ruler asked Jesus this question. He said, what must I do to be saved? It's the wrong question because the answer isn't what we can do. It's what Jesus has done, right? And so that's why this says, how can we know we're, we're in? <laughs> um, when you heard the gospel, I've just sh- shared with you the gospel. God has invited you into relationship with him to be part of his people through the forgiveness that Jesus has offered on the cross. He has paid the price. What is left for you to do? One thing, believe. Believe, do you see that? You were included in Christ when you heard, when you believed. And then you were marked in him with a seal and the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit becomes our inheritance, our deposit on our inheritance. Um, I'm gonna pray, uh, we're gonna sing, we're gonna go into communion, and we're gonna just continue to sit in this reality of the gospel for just a little bit longer this morning. Mm. Ushers, could you come and we'll receive our offerings. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for these truths. They're overwhelming. Some of them are hard to understand. And yet we can't miss your heart in it, your heart of love, your attitude of grace, your posture of generosity toward us. God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your pursuit and for choosing us in Christ. We give our offerings to you so that the gospel may go out with power and with grace and with effectiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.